What's up, everyone? Thanks for turning into this edition of Hiring University, powered by Ursus. My name is John Beck, founder and CEO of Ursus, and your host for today. I'm really excited about our guest today, Niani Tolbert, who by day uh, is a technical recruiter at Equinox, but in her spare time, and I say that tongue in cheek, is the founder and driver of Hashtag Hire Black which in a very short two months has gained an amazing amount of momentum. I found Niani through one of my daily listservs. I think it was uh, the Daily Skim or uh, The Hustle and reached out to her. And since that time, we've had a number of conversations and she's graciously agreed to join us today. Niani is well beyond her years. She has been named already one of the 30 most creative people in advertising under 30 by Business Insider. And prior to uh, that, she was the founder and CEO of Creative Control, which was both a pop shop and experimental marketing agency that she founded and ran for four years from 2015 to 2019. If you have yet to hear about hashtag Hire Black, you obviously will today, and odds are you're going to start to see more and more of our social media. Niani and her team's mission has absolutely caught fire, and she's here to tell us more about how she started, where she is today, and where she is going as well, too. So, Niani from Brooklyn, New York, welcome to Hiring University. Tell us a little bit about your mission, which started on Juneteenth, where you're at, and where you think things are going. Yes, thank you. What a wonderful introduction. Thank you so much, John. All this information, all this research, I really appreciate that wonderful introduction. So, Hire Black started off as an idea that initiated in how can I help and how can I have my own lane when it comes to advocacy. I have always done different research or resources, offered different resources to um, people throughout the pandemic. I started doing things called Glow Up Gang. So I was offering resources around fitness, wellness, finances to people throughout the pandemic to build a community. And as Juneteenth approached, even before, all of what was going on with George Floyd, I wanted to be able to help in some way on Juneteenth. Now, when a lot of the protests and a lot of the rallies started to happen, I kind of was frozen, to be honest with you. And so this is also just a lesson on understanding how advocacy can look in different ways. So I was actually paralyzed for a few days because I didn't know what to do, but I wanted to help in some way. And I was extremely afraid of going outside with the pandemic. And I just thought, what can I do? What, what can I do to help? So it took me about four days until I thought about what are my strengths, what is my network, and what can I do to contribute. I came up with helping 19 Black women get resume review sessions on Juneteenth because, hey, I am a recruiter. So if I have to help 19 Black women for 30, with 30-minute 30 sessions, hey, I can do that. <laughs> All I have to do is dedicate X amount of time. But I wanted to actually see if people, other people in my network could also help. So I asked my one of my friends, Brittany. Brittany works for L'Oreal. She does digital recruiting, digital talent. And so I asked her and she actually <laughs> immediately said, hey, I can dedicate a half a day. So I said, okay, I have so far, I have, I can help at least like 10 women. And let me just ask if, in LinkedIn if there's any more people. So I pulled out a post asking for recruiters and hiring managers to volunteer one hour of their day 
which would be two 30 minute sessions to help black women get resume review sessions. And it went crazy. Within 24 hours or within 48 hours, about 300 recruiters from top companies reached out. And I put out an application and, <laughs> and within 48 hours for on the application side, almost 600 black women applied. So I just kind of shut, shut it down for a second because I just thought, I don't know what I just got myself into. <laughs> I, what did I just commit myself to? Because I have been furloughed. I mean, you know, I work for Equinox. Equinox is a gym and a lot of gyms are closed, especially when you're thinking about tech and recruiting. So I had the time and I had the resources and the demand on both ends so I just decided I wanted to try to help pair as many people as possible. That was the original idea. <laughs> um, pairing as many people as possible and taking the idea or concept of higher Black helping 19 Black women to higher Black helping at least 100. Well, the first day on Juneteenth, we helped pair more than 40 people. So I just decided that 40 was too small. I mean, 100 was too small because that we can do that. We can do that real quick. 100 take it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was just like 100. No, that's that's too that's too small. So then I decided 1000, but with the Slack group and everything, I decided that 1000 was too small too. So our new goal is an ambitious 10,000 helping 10,000 black women get hired trained and promoted. And I'm really excited to share that we have already had some people who have gotten jobs, uh, job offers. We have had one person that has written to, into us about, about getting a new offer for a job that, would, that was a 150% salary increase from her previous job. Awesome. So and and I'm and I'm saying percentage increase, sure. so like more than yeah, more than doubled her salary almost. Like to hear this 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 feedback, uh, it has been phenomenal because of the fact that Black women have so many systemic oppressions when it comes to getting a job, when it comes to equal pay. That I wanted to be able to offer the smallest amount of support to create the biggest amount of impact on someone's life. Amazing. L let me, let me ask you, and 10,000 is, is a big goal, but you, you continue to build momentum. And I, I would imagine if we talk a month from now or two, that the number may even go up. I'm, I'm going to ask you some specific questions about black women and and minorities in general as they go through their educational careers and into the workforce. But let me, even before that, what do you think is different now than pre-pandemic? George Floyd obviously happened. I think people paid more attention because they were at home, because there weren't sports and other diversions. I'm old enough to have lived through, you know, the LA riots and Rodney King. What's different this time? Because it, it definitely feels different. Agree? Yes, 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 I agree. I think that, 
And, and I will make a bold statement. I don't think that we would have had so much momentum and not, I'm not even talking about higher black. I'm talking about the black lives matter movement. I'm talking about activism, understanding and listening to black voices as much if we weren't in the pandemic, if we weren't all quarantined, because like you said, there would have been a lot more distractions. It would have been something that just fades in and fades out as soon as there is another concert or as soon as there is another sports game or as soon as there is something else that would kind of pull the direction from us. During the pandemic, that's a, a lot of time of reflection and a lot of time to be able to listen. So uh, there's a sense of mindfulness that had to have happened. And this space and this opportunity for mindfulness has been able, has been cultivated or has been, the door has whole opened because of the fact that we're in quarantine. People have the time to read. People have the time to listen. People have the time to learn. And that needed a slowdown from the world in order to be able to do that. Um, unfortunately, that was necessary, but I think that this shows that this mindfulness is is important. And I hope that post, as soon as we're able to get out of quarantine, so post quarantine, we continue to keep that mindfulness because that mindfulness helps humanity push forward. My hope is that there's just the momentum continues to build as we get back into normal. And I'm, I'm glad you see that, that it has changed as well too. So I want to now start through, you know, the journey, if you will. And I did research prior to us getting together and I've always thought of myself as fairly well-educated and versed on some of the challenges. And to be honest, after reading and doing some research, I, I'm, not, I'm clearly not. And I want to share some of this uh, with our listeners and, and obviously have a chance for you to respond. Starting with the, the K through 12 student experience, and the obstacles for Black women and minorities to move into or to play in their careers for STEM jobs. And STEM is science, technology, engineering, and math. There are reasons that are culturally based and rooted in the perception that these industries, and, I, and the, the, the stats don't lie, are male-dominated and female-unfriendly and diversity-unfriendly. I think in the last decade or so, there's been some great initiatives like Black Girls Code, and companies are now starting to invest more First of all, do you agree with that assessment? If you're a black woman or girl, if that phase in your life, do you still think that they're unfriendly and that there's not a path to do that? And what can what can be done at that level? Because it's great what you're doing to train and help women get these jobs, but their pool is still small, let's be honest, right? Because there's a lot of women that haven't gone through their educational process to even get to the point to apply for those jobs. What can be done differently at K through 12, both for students and for their parents? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I, I would like to extend this um, to the listeners. I have a very unique experience when it comes to K through 12. I did from middle school throughout the end of high school. I was in a magnet program that was specifically for STEM. And after high school, I went to an all women's college. <laughs> so I have a very unique experience about like for what I was able to get out of school. And I do know that I do understand my privilege in having that. I had a, there was, I had a privilege of, of being in the magnet program and I had a privilege of um, being surrounded by such 
wonderful women in college that all felt very empowered to go into STEM. So I can't speak to my personal experiences about K through 12, but I definitely know that there are initiatives and there can definitely be more. I think that when it came to my experience, I had like good grades and uh, was the typical student. I definitely had a different upbringing than a lot of other Black women or Black people in general. I had a, I had a privilege when it came to that. There are some people or some Black people who did, came from a different class or didn't have a grandmother who was a teacher who drilled certain things in or didn't have a uncle who was a science teacher who drilled certain things in and always knew what was going on. My grandma was a, she was a, she was a department lead at her high school. So she always knew what programs that were going on. And so she always really pushed me to do that. I think that when there becomes more and more initiatives that help Black people feel as though they can get into these programs without having to have certain GPAs or without having to have certain, I guess, hurdles, then we're going to be able to like have more Black people in STEM. Mm-hmm. I think that For my experience, I had to, in order to get into magnet programs, I had to get certain GPAs. Mm -hmm. And my family was full of educators. And not every family is full of educators. There's a lot of reasons why someone may not have the grades and it may not be because of them. So there's, there's, there's a lot of layers. And if we remove these qualifications that are needed to access these programs. And if there's more programs that are just open to people, then we can realize the untapped potential that we have, that we're kind of barring through these necessary or through these standards that we're expecting for people to meet, Mm -hmm. especially at such a young age. I hope that that answers that I specifically had some great programs, but I had these programs because I had certain grades and I don't think that these grades should be required in order to tap into these programs. I I think there's something here because if you look at the statistics and I'm going to move from K through 12 now into college and and these jumped out the page, there's definitely, there's, there's some breakdown of either opportunities or specific programs or identification. When they, when they pull students and Ask them, what do you want to do? What major, when they go into college, what do you want to major, what, what, what do you want to do? It's exactly the same whether you're pulling a white demographic versus a minority demographic of their interest level to go into STEM. Same rate. But the overall percentage of graduates' degrees is half across minorities versus whites. And 50% of minorities switch to another major after they've enrolled in a STEM program. So I want to break this down because, first of all, STEM programs are hard. And I, you know, I was a pre-med uh, major initially and I got out because it was hard. You know, it's that, so that's, let's start there. But the abandonment rate is, is there's more to it than just it's hard, right? What, what can colleges do then and companies that are supporting colleges to help promote and encourage? Because I think it comes down to, where, you know, when you get into colleges, you progress, you think, okay, I got to think about my career and make a living. And if I don't see a path forward that's accepting 
and looking for me as a minority, I'm going to maybe get discouraged and do it just out of necessity. Uh, yeah, I think that you you're definitely hitting, and I'm really really happy that you even <laughs> like that you hit this part because I think one thing that people need to realize when it comes to education is that minorities have a have a different approach to what success looks like. So a lot of people have the idea of generational wealth. Generational wealth, it looks like me being me passing down generation, me passing down something to my children. And that means that I'm successful. However, uh, with a lot of minorities, especially who people who are first generation immigrants, people who are first generation college students, college graduates, they're seeing things as can I take what this is? Can I take eight years out of my life to become a doctor? Mm. And when I become a doctor, is this going to make my family successful? So this $100,000 salary is not going to me to my children. This is going to, I have to take care of my sister. I have to take care of my mother. I have people to take care of. So a lot of the times people can't even think about what is going, what can this look like for me? Because people are wondering how in the meantime, am I going to be able to help my family? I hope my boyfriend doesn't mind that I'm sharing this, but I do want to say this. My boyfriend wanted to become an oncologist. He's a first generation college graduate. He is a Haitian. He, he moved here from Haiti. His mom was a single mother because his father passed when he was in middle school. He had the grades. He's a very, very smart, very smart guy. One of the smartest people that I know. But his mom had cancer. And because his mom had cancer in undergraduate, he decided that he cannot become an oncologist. He was the oldest child and he had to be able to take care of his mother and his two brothers. And, you know, his mom wanted to help people in Haiti. And so he actually ended up going to Columbia for graduate school. He got his MPH, master's in public health. And he did not become an oncologist because he felt as though that will require too much time. He needs to help his family now. And even though he's so dedicated to cancer research, because of the fact that both of his, at this point, his mom has passed, he's very dedicated to cancer research because both of his parents did pass of cancer. That doesn't mean that he doesn't have that, that interest. He doesn't mean that he doesn't have that skill. It doesn't mean that he has like all of the, he couldn't get the resources. But at that point, it was, I can't because I will not, I will not be able to, to help my family at that point. So there is a lot of people who have the skill, right? <laughs> have the potential to do amazing things. But because of the fact that there is a racial wealth divide and because of the fact that there is, you know, certain just this historical disadvantages, people can't take on opportunities because they're thinking about survival, which is really unfortunate. Let's agree mm-hmm. to the assumption that the divide is there. But here's mm-hmm. a candidate that has the aptitude and the desire to do it, but has the practicality of taking care of a family. What, right. and he's, a, he's thinking about medical school, but in the corporate world, like what, what can, how can the corporate world think differently to accommodate the reality that exists for a lot of people? And I think some of it's happening now, even with the work from home movement, which to me is really mm-hmm. exciting. A lot of people underestimate, like 
Every research study ever done shows that a healthier, happier employee is a more productive employee. So rather than having people commute for hours on end a day, let them be home to take care of their kids, to go to the soccer practice, to to do the tutoring. They're still going to do the work. There's ways that any ideas around what could have been different to allow him to do that or extend it into the corporate space? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. I think that we are tapping into what that looks like with the work from home movement. This is, it's a little bit radical to even think about, (laughs) we have to really restructure the whole idea of what work looks like. Mm -hmm. We have to restructure the whole idea of what education looks like. And I think that it's great that we have tapped into what the potential of productivity looks like during a pandemic. Because I think that that's going to open doors. That's going to open doors because we're adding an, a human element to to work, to school. I've talked to a few <laughs> a few moms who have like had their babies in their laps while they're having a meeting. Hey, I can't take this meeting now. Can you take a meeting at eight p.m. because I have to take my mom to the hospital? These are ways to push forward. I'm still thinking about what that can look like. But making sure that we're not, I think the workforce is not always thinking efficiency first, but humanity first. When you have more compassion and when you're able to allow people to have their lives, but still so that they can be on top of and and be their best self, I think that we can really move forward not only with efficiency because you have people bringing a diverse sense of opinions but we can build better things yeah in general no i i I agree and i think this is a real opportunity and we could probably spend another two hours talking about uh, redesigning what work means how it's done i i think again one of the really positive byproducts of the pandemic is it's forcing us to think about how we've done things for so long, just because it's the way things were done. Right. And, and things mm-hmm. are simple. You got to be in your chair at the office at eight o'clock and leave by five. Why? If I have a, if I'm a, if I produce things, I'm a software developer, I'm a project manager, you know, why, why, and why do I have to spend a couple hours in my car and why can't I work from home with my kids? That, that leads me into my next kind of the phase of this thinking about the talent pool for black women So, and for our listeners who can't see it, by the way, I'm a 50 year old black, uh, sorry, 50 year old white man. Niani's a 20 something black woman. So we come from very different perspectives. I I knew there was a racial diversity issue in my industry and technology. I didn't realize it was as bad when I read the numbers. In tech, first of all, 82% are men, 18% women. Within that population, 50% white, 2% black. And within those numbers, there are stats that show that 41% of women leave technology's careers mid-career as opposed to only 13% of men. Now, the easy answer is, well, women get pregnant and they start families. That's too convenient and too easy. I don't buy into that. There's something else going on here where either that is happening and there's not acceptance or path back, or women are being discouraged or feeling discouraged that there's a path forward in their career, which is really what leads to what you're doing and your example of people getting 150% pay raises. Mm-hmm. Break that down for me. Cause there's, we got to do better, right? That's, that's obviously those are very troubling numbers. Yeah. I definitely think that 
it is about uh, what you can say it's unconscious. It's about the bias that people have, not everyone, but there is bias towards women, bias towards women of color when it comes to STEM. And some can be because of many things. So the idea of if someone goes to a certain school, then their talent is better than someone going to another school and kind and seeing predominantly white institutions or certain Ivy League schools as someone that is more valuable than someone who comes from an HBCU because they believe that their programs aren't adding up, which predominantly white institutions don't have that many Black people. So if you're only looking for people who are coming from MIT, (laughs) you're already limiting the pool. One, limiting the pool, but then thinking of if you're looking for someone who is a person of color or if there's like, think about how many people of color that come from that school in that specific program. Yeah. So this Ivy League or this specific school type of recruiting just does not work. It just doesn't work. It can be because of the lack of diversity of opinions when it comes to technology. Honestly, there is a lack of diversity of opinions when it comes to a lot of departments because people are thinking of, does this person remind me of myself? Does this person want, did this person go to the same school as me? Does this person think like me? These, these create this I, sub-community-like structure in technology or in anything, but especially in technology. Yeah. It's, hey, what's, what school did this person go to? How long has this person been in technology? Does this person code like me? There's, there's a unified I, kind of personality or unified kind of voice within technology right now that I do feel as though it does not include a lot of Black women. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't for many different reasons that I, <laughs> some of which I just stated. Yeah. I, I think it's, some of the statistics are because, and again, this is not a dismissive comment, it's, it's numbers, that the pool is shallower because of all the reasons we cited that happened with K through 12 and through college. And we've talked about that. But some of it is awareness. I'm going to refer to a program I heard about from another peer of mine whose company implemented something similar to the Rooney Rule. And for those of you that don't know the Rooney Rule, the NFL, you could say whether it's successful or not, but the the NFL has a rule that they have to have a certain number of diversity candidates during the hiring process to look at and consider along the way. There's some technology companies that are doing that, which I think is good because if you Mm -hmm. operate under the assumption that recruiters and, and please forgive me as a recruiter, I'm going to say this, but I run a recruiting company. I'll say it anyways. Recruiters are lazy. They pattern match. They do exactly what you said. Oh, this person graduated from Harvard. They must be smart and really qualified, right? I went to a pretty good school at Cal Berkeley. I can tell you, I I was with tons of knuckleheads and people that weren't very qualified versus people of school that you've never heard of that are ambitious and smart and go-getters that are much better qualified. So that doesn't work. What other programs like the Rooney Rule or things can companies implement in addition to the things that you're doing that will help that that assumption that recruiters and recruiting teams are lazy and we've got to just, we've got to have a way to put black women and minorities on the radar in the pool. That makes sense. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely agree that 
recruiting can be very, very, very transactional. And so that is something that we have to recognize. We have to realize that sometimes it's like, hey, can we put this person in a space? So does this person mark these checkboxes? I also know that a lot of the times hiring managers don't even know what they want. They, they don't know what they want. And so they find someone and they say, well, we actually need someone like this person, right. <laughs> um, which is like, this is not what you've said. This does not match with the, with the job description. And so we already see that people invest into people, right? We people invest into people. So I think that when it comes to recruiting, we need to think about how, like what spaces that we need to get into. We need to get into diverse spaces. We need to hire from diverse spaces because this idea of what is incoming and then let's like check them off is <laughs> just not going to work. I think that it, as recruiters, we also need to take a bit more of a stance when it comes to being, how can I say this? I think we need to take more of a stance when it comes to when we speak to hiring managers about requirements and about what the job description looks like. Mm-hmm. If you notice the biases of someone saying, hey, well, I went to this college. I want someone else who went to this college. Challenge that <laughs> because yep. that's not OK. Yeah. Um, why are we taking this person off? Why are we saying that this person is not as good as this other person? <laughs> is it because they didn't have come from this college? Right. I, and I think we have a lot of recruiters and people in the talent industry that are earlier in their careers. I think that people investing into people is really wise and it'll help recruiters get better because the, the traditional pattern matching and laziness, as I describe it, a lot of recruiters just keep doing the same thing over and over again, and they're not looking. I mean, there's not enough qualified people to do the job. Why are you still looking in the same place? Look somewhere else. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. It is important for companies to invest into developing talent. It's so important because if a company is not investing into their learning and development or investing into internships, then that is not a company that is really committed to diversifying talent or generating leaders for the future. It allows people to get certain experience and open their network where they would not have been able to if they did not have that after they graduated from college. Like they, it just, it's so important. And I think every company has the capabilities um, of, of, of helping develop talent. I think that people need to, we're, no matter if they see an ROI, that if they, if they see it, because there is an ROI to that, yeah. I think that it's important for companies to just do it, like period. Yeah, I agree 100%. And the, the frustra- one of the frustrating trends I've seen through the pandemic is more companies saying, we've stopped doing internships because we don't have the means to, to give the time and energy to the interns. I think that is such a cop-out. I understand that there's costs associated with it, but if anything, your cost is reduced now because you're doing everything remote. And there are so many qualified people or people with potential that want those, I mean, unpaid internships. Your ROI is massive. If you can spend some time to train those people up, you're still going to be, nine months from now, you're still going to be looking to fill those jobs. If you would invest in somebody to train them, it's right under your nose. So I just... 
that's an area where we've just got to do better. And I think the, the, the pandemic is an easy out. It's a cop out. Um, yeah. And if you're thinking about pipeline, the yeah. internship, if you have a good enough internship program, it yes. should fill your pipeline. You yep. should feel good at the end of the internship program to be able to hire some people. So that's, I, I definitely think, I agree. It's a cop out. 100%. 100%. Okay, I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about you. And this is a section that we do in every episode to try to, for our listeners who are through their own career path, learning from our guests. And the first question I asked everyone is, and you obviously are, are not as old as some of our other guests and have done a lot in a short period of time, but if you could go back to when you started your career, what would you have, what would you tell yourself of then or at that point with all the things that you know now? Ooh. What advice? Um, my advice to myself would be to try to get to know as many people as I can. When I started off my career, I wanted to just get into pop-up shops. I was really committing myself and dedicating myself to those, like a few handful of companies. And I really committed to, to just working for people <laughs> and how can I help those companies excel and grow? I wasn't really working on trying to make and establish connections personally or on my own. And I've learned so much from people by trying to expand my network and create and establish meaningful connections that I I do feel as though I, I mean, it's, I'm very young, so I do feel as though I missed out on some valuable time by just working. I think that everyone needs to understand that when it comes to, and one of my, my friend Brittany said it the best, when it comes to your job or when it comes to um, looking for a job or, or connections, it is 80-20. So if you're outside looking for a job, it should be 20% actually applying for jobs, but 80% reaching out to people and trying to talk to people. And I think that that should be the case for as you excel in your career, it should be 20% of, oh my gosh, what am I going to do next? And 80% really, really trying to make connections. And not, uh, when I say making connections, it's not like I'm going to a networking event. What can you do for me? Yeah. But really establishing relationships that can be long lasting because when it comes to everything in my career, it has been because of the great connections and the, the, the actual legitimate connections that I have. And as a Black woman, I feel as though I've had that privilege that a lot of people don't have. Being a recruiter, you know, being connected to so many people. I want everyone to have that type of mindset of just, just trying to make sure that you're making great connections and make sure that you're making finding mentors and sponsors and finding your community that's going to help you excel for it. You don't have to do it alone. We talk about that every episode and every webinar that I've been on that has come up. It's a skill. You have to practice it. For a lot of people, it's not natural. It's even uncomfortable. Yes. For a job seeker, it is the number one thing that you can do. And don't be apologetic for it. Yes. People <laughs> want to help. And, and if they don't want to help, that's probably not somebody who's worth talking to to begin with. So that's really good advice. You mentioned mentorship, uh, and it sounds like you've had some good ones along the way. Who's the best mentor you've had? Why? And 
what do you see two part question and what do you as a as a mentor to others which you are what do you mm-hmm. try to take from that experience and pass along to others oh this is a this is a really really good question because i have had so many great people i've had one person who i really really value is my old boss christopher ayano who now works for bloomberg he's a technical recruiter i appreciate him so much because when he became my boss he gave me guidance but literally just was like okay this is what you have to do build this and if you have any other ideas just go ahead and do it so giving someone who has guided me and yet given me autonomy I appreciate so much because I know that there are a lot and I've worked with some people that who are micromanagers. And so if you have a micromanager, you know, you're not really reaching your potential because you're just doing exactly what they say. So I appreciate Chris so 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 much because he really trusted in me and he's and 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 was really more more of a guide than anything. I also appreciate this woman named Tria Bryant. She's a she's a force when it comes to diversity and inclusion and when I first became a recruiter, she helped me understand the, the different diversity and inclusion tactics and things that we things to who things to open my eyes about being and hiring from that perspective. I worked with her for about 2 months because she was a consultant, but she taught me so much. She also helped me realize things about value and my own personal worth. Mm. She is a black woman and to see someone who has excelled so much in her career. She started off in in the Air Force. She was a security engineer for the Air Force and became a recruiter. Then she went into the finance industry and for big banks she was a recruiter. Then she went to Twitter and was a recruiter. So so to see someone to that looks like myself yeah. be so proud and so so just unapologetically her and know so much and and kind of take me under her wing. I really 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 appreciate her. And I also just want to the last set of mentors I want to shout out are all of the people who have just reached out to support Higher Black and the people that I've talked to from Pay It Forward which is Hate from Bombas is an initiative. And I've put myself on people's calendar and people have literally given me some advice that I would not have been able to have just by my own personal network. There's been so many people who have been also open to just sharing these secrets that they have in their own personal frameworks that has allowed my own initiative Higher Black to excel. Like, hey, you should use Airtable. Hey, in order to make decisions about partnerships, you should do this. These are all things that that I did not have to figure out on my own which was how what I had to do for my first business and what I had to do when I was starting off I I was afraid to ask questions and I felt like I had to do this on my own but people are literally giving me answers I don't have to figure it out like that is so amazing it's so incredible that people are so open to sharing information especially at this time so I want to thank every single person that I've talked to and every single person that has reached out and given feedback because I don't feel as though I had to struggle. <laughs> I don't feel as though this whole process was a struggle. I feel as though it was, hey, I have a question, I get the answer. Yeah. So, these type of resources are so 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 important. I would not have been able to 
tap into those otherwise. And I appreciate them. Well, and it lends itself to your earlier comment. You, you have a network that was listening and had you not built that network, you may have, you may have had some progress, but probably not as much. Fair? Exactly. Network is so important. One of the things that I want to do in Higher Black is to do a glow up your LinkedIn. So how can you make your LinkedIn visible? How can you use LinkedIn to its potential? I think that, you know, hiring Black talent is not a pipeline issue. It's a network issue. Tell us. On top of a lot of other issues. Yeah, no, we covered. <laughs> and again, could probably spend another hours if not days talking about Tell Tell our listeners there's a bunch of different ways to get involved. There's uh, there's a GoFundMe page. There's volunteer time for recruiters. There's obviously awareness people. There's the Slack channel. Share with our listeners how people can get involved. Yes, yes. So you can go to www.hireblacknow.com and you'll see there are opportunities for both allies and for Black talent, um, Black women to participate. So we have an ally newsletter. We have a community newsletter. For the ally newsletter, I'd like to share resources on how to be a great ally, different readings and think pieces that we, to kind of open the eyes of, or open the eyes, but more specifically, help realize the blind spots that there are from not having the Black experience. You can volunteer by also signing up for the volunteer form. For Black women, we have the community newsletter, which shares, we, which shares different resources that we have, that we are finding, um, and also share some job postings from some of the partners that we have also shares some of the views. So I like to include and highlight some Black talent that are within the community. And the Slack channel is a channel for and by Black women, which is a safe space for Black women to talk about their experiences. But we do add allies to our ally introduction single checks, the single Slack channel so that we can connect allies with the Black women and continue to maintain that safe space. Um, I also want to share that we will have a Higher Black Summit that is coming up in September. It's going to be Saturday, September 19th, and that will have an ally track and a career development track. So whether you want to hear more about how to be a better ally or to if you want to hear about how to blow up your LinkedIn, blow up your resume, then we have something for everyone there. And we will have a virtual career fair that will be attached to it where we'll have com- companies who can have their own booth space and share more details about the opening open roles that they have, the coping culture. They'll also have that that space for them. So that's going to be a part of our big initiative to help at least a thousand Black women during that summit. And I'm so excited to to share that with you. Awesome and amazing how much you have achieved in such a short period of time. Yanni, thank you for coming on the show. You have built and are building a movement that's really important and impactful. And we appreciate you and, and the insights and promise you'll come back in a couple months so we can check in on yes. and know that Ursus is continuing to be involved in the program. We'll make sure there's information available to those linked to the podcast. And for our listeners, keep the faith, keep grinding, keep safe, and we will see you next time. Thanks, Yanni. Thank you.